says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet Podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020. And joining me for this week's NRL and news podcast is my good mate, 60s. But before I get him on here, it means I've got to sound out the call. News team, assemble! Been a busy week of representative football 60s. How did you pull up through all of the action across state and country, mate? Mate, that, um, that new team assemble, it's just like the Batman signal. Put it up, up in, in the, the sky. sky. That's right, exactly. Got the bat I symbol heard up the there. Call. I could hear it. I could hear it in the background. I, the, the sound was there. It was permeating the atmosphere. I knew I had to be here for the podcast right now. Mate, what a brilliant inclusion to have that in there so I know <laughs> that you're ready to go. You could be trekking into the heart of the Amazon, mate, and you'd hear that one just echo throughout the air across the globe and you know it's time for the podcast. It's like, get me online now. <laughs> uh, but like I said, Rep Week is behind us. We're going to have plenty to talk about. The Blues rolled the Maroons over in Perth. There was a whole suite of fantastic international games, some great junior representative action too. We're going to talk all that today. We're going to talk some NRL, uh, I wouldn't say signing drama, but uh, a very contentious uh, process that's been happening in the last couple of seasons. I know you've got something to say about that, 60s. But to get us through all of this, it's uh, the third musketeer for the NRL and news podcast. Uh, without any further ado, let's get Spiro on the show, mate. Yeah, and, and a very appropriate week for Spiro to get on here because not only has it been that state of origin, but Spiro debuted as a match caller for the Pacific Tests over the weekend. So it's going to be great to get his takes on that. Spiro, welcome to the news edition of the Tip Sheet podcast, mate. Thanks so much for the wonderful intro, 60s. It's very kind of you and Really looking forward to speaking to you guys about what was an excellent weekend of footy and previewing the return of uh, the regular NRL scheduling this weekend. Yeah, mate, can we um, can we go straight away to your experience in calling the Pacific Tests and, and your takes on the Pacific Tests first? 100%. And just to, to set the scene and paint the picture a little bit for you guys and for all of the uh, Cumberland Throw listeners out there, I've had a relationship with this radio station called FM 100, who are basically the number one radio station across the whole of Papua New Guinea. They're, they go into all districts and areas of the country and they have a listener base of between two and a half and three million people, which is huge. And the weekend's uh, call was a, a massive hit there. But basically how it worked was I do a segment once a week in there, a 10-minute, 15-minute uh, wrap of the, the NRL round on a Saturday morning. And I said to the guys, I said, why didn't you come down for the Pacific Test? This was about six to eight weeks ago. You should come down here, call the game and broadcast it back up to Papua New Guinea. And they couldn't believe it. They, they were just amazed that that was even a possibility or a thing. So they got a few sponsors on board and they made their way to Sydney. And some, for some of them, it was their first time outside of Papua New Guinea. So a very significant moment for them. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time that a radio station 
from PNG has actually done an, an outside broadcast in another country. So it was a very significant moment. And in the in the lead up to them traveling to Sydney on last Friday, one of their touring one of the people in their touring party who was the head caller, his mother-in-law passed away and, and was not able to travel. And I knew that I was going to be involved in some capacity in the coverage, but I didn't know to what extent. And pretty much 24 hours before, they said, you're going to have a major role to play. Uh, are you up to it? And I said, look, I've never called a game of rugby league before. I've never done sideline for a game of rugby league before, but I'll have a go. You know, it's something I've always wanted to try, to try and call a game. I know you you guys have both done it and you've broadcasted, but I have never had that chance. So I sort of, uh, I was surprised and also really excited at the opportunity. And I think I surprised myself a little bit because I, I thought I'd be be pretty hopeless and you know there'd be big gaps and and whatnot but um just when I was there in the moment it was uh it was a, a fantastic experience I, I really really enjoyed it a lot of fun and I think the the big key is just to to fill the airtime because it's different to TV where yep. you've got the images painting the picture when it's radio and you guys know this because you've done it you've really got to set the scene and, and make sure that the listener can really be there with you and, and visualize and, and immerse themselves in what's happening on the field. And it was a really great night of football as well, which made it a whole lot easier. Plenty of points scored. A little bit concerning with the Cook Islands team because they didn't have too many first graders, but thank goodness for Makahisi Makatoa. I mentioned him about 50,000 times. <laughs> and um, and he, I think he, he played quite well apart from a dangerous tackle. Yes, uh, I agree. I believe on um, Keenan Palacia. Palacia. So yeah, it was, look, guys, it was a great experience. I really appreciate your support, and um, and yeah, looking forward to to more experiences like that down the track, and and we'll de- we'll dive into the game shortly as well. Yeah, I can't attest to the quality of the coverage that Sixties and I provided for the New South Wales Cup last year, but it is an incredibly unique experience calling a game, and it's something that is a lot of fun. And like you said, when you're trying to fill the air, and it just it creates a different perspective on how you watch the game too. So, yeah, mm. really, really cool to see you do that, mate. It's a big step forwards in a, or a notch in the belt, I suppose. And uh, they, the uh, P&G crew picked an incredible game to come and call, didn't they? Because how good were the, the P&G boys over the Fijians? Fantastic. And, and when you look at the teams on paper, we spoke about this last week. The P&G side had, be- they had a couple of first graders. They didn't have that uh, depth in terms of the big names and, and the first graders. When you look at the Fijian side, they had Micah, they had Wanga, they also had Tui Kamakamika, they had Kevin Nagama, they had uh, Sunia Turuva, who's uh, at Penrith, who was brilliant on, on Saturday night. So they had they had the notable first graders. That was, the, you know, their advantage. But the Kumuls, they, they had a team uh, made up of a lot of Queensland Cup boys who mm-hmm. play for the, the hunters, hunters up there. Yep, exactly. And, yeah, that's it, the PNG Hunters. And... That really paid off. You could see that the connection was there. I think Lachlan Lamb was man of the match for me and, and he was awarded man of the match. He was just absolutely brilliant and uh, worked off his um, his halves partner, Kyle Labutt, really well. And they they did well to win that game. They were the outsiders. No one thought that the Kumuls could get the win, but they got the job done 24 to 14 and the celebrations were unreal after the game. David Mead playing in his final international fixture for Papua New Guinea. So a point poignant night for him. He did score a try and it was just an all-around brilliant occasion. Being out there and being immersed in it all, the, the crowd figure was around 10, between you know, 10 and 11,000, but it felt like there were 20,000. When you heard the roars and 
and the atmosphere, it was insane. So, yeah, the Kumuls had a great win. And then you had the earlier game, which I actually really enjoyed as well. And the scoreline probably didn't reflect how close it was at times. The Samoan side, 42, defeated the Cook Islands um, outfit, 12. And those Panthers boys, Taylor and May, Isaac, Tago, were, you know, standouts. May's, and they worked off each other nicely. He's got a bit of pace out there. Uh, but, yeah, the, this was a game where Samoa, they jumped out to that early lead and looked like it was going to be a complete blowout after 21 minutes. I think they were up 20 nil uh, mm. or more. But then the second half, the Cook Islands rolled up their sleeves, crossed a couple of times, and, and were very unlucky not to cross a few more, just some desperate defense from Samoa keeping them out. Um, I thought Anthony Milford had a really strong game. Uh, also, Josh Schuster in the back row was very good too. That Samoan team looked pretty handy on paper, and they certainly played that way in the game as well. Very much so, and they, they have the depth. When you look at that team compared to the other Pacific Island nations that were playing at Campbelltown on Saturday, by far the Samoan side on paper, they fielded the most first graders and fielded a side which, you know, everyone, we, we all would have known every player in that, their team. Exactly. You could <laughs> name the, like the team each player played for. Exactly. For sure, for sure. And when you factor in as well and you think about the World Cup later this year, they're going to have probably guys like Jerome Luai in that team as well, uh, potentially Stephen Crichton, I mean, uh, Brian Thor. Depending on whether Junior gets picked for Australia, he'd be eligible for Samoa too. Exactly right. So it's this Samoan side, I think everyone talks about Tonga and and uh, their star-studded lineup, and I you know fully agree they're, they're a force to be reckoned with. But I think that the Samoan side are probably a better makeup of a team. And David Nofaluma was just unreal. He scored four tries, and they just they, the, the whole team worked worked with each other really nicely. Anthony Milford in the halves provided that stability for them. Jazz Tavanga at hooker, so they they had the team on paper. They backed it up, and credit to the Cook Islands, especially in the the final twenty minutes of that first half. They probably deserved to be on the board at halftime, but they definitely deserve to be on the board at halftime. Makahisi did well. I think the Masters boys, Stephen and Eason Masters mm-hmm. were great. Davey Mawali, the Rabbitohs Jr. as well. So, and, and another guy who was a, I was quite impressed with, a Brisbane player we don't see a lot of, Brendan Piakura. I think he played one first grade game for the Broncos well, he, last year. He was he a player that the Eels were chasing prior to uh, linking up with, or re, sorry, linking up, re-upping with the Broncos. And I think injuries kept him out uh, mm. of the team because he he's a highly rated back row prospect. I rate him. I rate him really highly, and I haven't seen a lot of him. But what from what I saw on Saturday night, he's definitely a um, you know he's a player with potential, and and it was just a, a fantastic night as well from a cultural atmosphere point of view. It was fantastic. It was brilliant, and great to see all the the faithful, the Samoan faithful particularly. There were plenty of uh, Samoan flags there and um, yeah it was a, just a brilliant night and I really enjoyed the call as well it was a, a, a really fun experience and, that, and I've got to ask you mate hmm. just how close did you get to the celebrations afterwards hey I've got to admit I got pretty close to the Kumul celebrations because um, Shane Flanagan is a coaching assistant there actually um, I, I was in the sheds post-match and, and was offered a beer from um, Paul Ayton I don't know if you guys know I remember, Paul, yeah, I remember yeah. Paul yeah. And he's, a, he's just a champion guy. So I really enjoyed meeting Paul. Um, and he offered me a beer in the sheds after, which I was pretty chuffed about. And um, and we got pretty close. I got to actually uh, chat with uh, Mike Acevo post-game. Uh, Viliami Kikau, they were very generous with their time in uh, taking a few photos with us and, and the crew that had come all the way from Papua New Guinea. And it was a, a really nice occasion. And just a side note, while we're speaking about Paul Ayton, 
And I know that, unfortunately, she's not a Parramatta Eels NRLW player anymore. Therese Ayton, who is renowned, unfortunately, she's renowned for that nasty hit she copped in the NRLW season early this year. We actually had her on our panel for about half an hour, 40 minutes on Saturday uh, in the morning. We we do like a sports show. So uh, we had Therese Ayton, who's lovely, unfortunately, no NRLW contract for her for the upcoming season. But um, yeah, she's a she she's a you know definitely a player with potential as well, and I'm sure she'll get snapped up next year when mm-hmm. you've got those extra teams coming in. Yeah, so good to meet her. That's it, a, a Parramatta NRLW player as well, or former NR, NRLW player. Yeah. So okay, so that 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 was the um, the the Pacific tests were almost like the the meat in the Origin sandwich, weren't they? Um, so mm. just. Moving on then to um, Origin, what was uh, what was your take on the uh, Origin match on Sunday, mate? It was really good and uh, much improved side. I, I think we um, we have a bit of luck when we go over to Perth now. So if we can play a, a game in Perth every year, big, not going to complain big wins about over that. In Perth, yeah, uh, so it's a it's a bit of a good luck charm. So we've won our past two there, a resounding win, forty four points to twelve, and the side. I think the obvious thing for me was the halves. They really turned it on. And uh, Jerome Luai, Nathan Cleary were, were just faultless, flawless in my eyes. And I think that uh, Queensland, they didn't necessarily do a good enough job of shutting those two down as they did in game one. There was a lot of criticism leveled at Nathan, and rightly so. They, he didn't really step up and Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's unfair to say he had a bad game in game one, but he no, had an excellent no. game in game two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he um he turned it on and he probably uh, outplayed or definitely outplayed uh, the Maroons' outfit and it was a tense start to the game. But once it opened up in that second half, around that 60th minute mark, it was really good viewing and, and good football. And and we'll dive into this in a minute. The changes for game three. It'll be interesting to see what happens. And I'm keen to get your takes on that. But. Overall, I thought it was it was a, a great great game. Daniel Tupo stepped up. Not just the fact that he scored that try, but I was a little bit concerned before the game about Daniel Tupo and his involvement. But I think he did a, a fantastic job. James Tedesco looked electric, and I know maybe his scoring stats didn't um, back that up, but he was just just fantastic for the Blues. Matt Burton, a, a great debut for him, and uh, the forwards. I think they all did their job. It was interesting how Freddie ran his bench. It was a, a little bit bizarre because my impression was that um, he would have brought Apisai Coruscant back into the into the the match towards the back end, maybe in the last fifteen minutes. But I guess because the style of play was working well and, and the Blues looked good, um, he didn't really want to make make any changes and wanted to leave it as is. So a, a really good game, guys. And I know we spoke last week about some questionable selections. But it looks like Freddie, uh, Freddie has been proven to have made a bit of a masterstroke uh, with those changes for game two. Well, we're we're going to be talking about this at uh, at some length because you just you touched on what what are we expecting in terms of changes for game three. Well, I, I only want to see the force changes in mm. game three because my philosophy remains the same that the teams earn the players earn their spot in the team. I didn't agree with the the number of changes that he made for game two and this and and it's something i'm going to be talking about in in length with uh 40 is that Mm. i didn't think that it was um that the result was going to be any different 
regardless of the players that he selected, because I I I believe that Nathan Cleary was key to the match. That uh, that he would have a much better game in game two. I wasn't uh, an advocate of all those wholesale changes because I think, and and again, this is something we'll talk about in in a bit more depth, is that the uh, the players that didn't perform well stepped up in game in game two, and I'd like to think that they're going to continue to step up in game three, and for that reason, I don't want to advocate any changes, even though I think there were players that shouldn't have been brought in. I wouldn't mm. advocate change. I think just keep the team. Yeah, the team, you know, if if players have done have performed well enough in the regular season to earn selection for the for the squad, then that's you know, unless something goes disastrously wrong. I mean, disastrously wrong. Then then you start talking about change. But Billy Slater's already hinted that scoreline isn't going to influence him to go and make wholesale changes. He's got mm. faith in the players, yeah. So yeah. It'll, be, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because I'm expecting that Queensland those players that performed, oh, let's face it, they were they were really overrun in that in that back end of the game. I yeah. mean, it was it wasn't mm. even a contest by the by the end of the match. But I don't expect it. I don't expect that two matches in a row. I think they'll lift. And um, and as I'm going to talk with Forty about, um, the, the key player is going to be Munster in terms of uh, Origin three. So mm. how how well he turns out. So um, yeah. Um, now just moving on, mm. and we're, I'm going to ch- turn things around because we we normally when we're chatting with you we we cover the Parramatta news first. And then yep. we look at the general rugby league news, but I want to leave the Parramatta stuff as as the last thing we talked to you about this week. Mm. The West Tigers coaching gig. Oh man, it's it seems like a bit of a basket case. Uh, that's the impression that I'm getting at the moment. That no one really wants to take on the job. I'm a little bit surprised because when you look at some of their recruits for next year, you got Corusau and Papali'i. That they're pretty big signings, and I genuinely think that having Appy there at hooker is going to make a huge difference and having Ice there uh, will, be, will be big for the Tigers as well. And, yeah, they've got to get their halves situation right and, and other guys have to start pulling their weight as well. But I think that they're going to improve next year regardless of who's coaching them. I think the Tigers are going to be a better team. And um, there's, there's a lot of talk, you know. I was a bit sort of, sort of shocked about uh, revelations this week that the Tigers are really happy with what Kamali's done, I mean. Has he got any wins under his belt as an interim coach? I don't, from what I know, he hasn't. And um, maybe they've come close and they've they've looked just a little bit better. But in my view, I think that unfortunately Kamali, you know, isn't the man for the job going forward. And uh, they're going to need to really widen their options. That news came through uh, last weekend about Cam Soraldo. And I don't blame oh, him. I mean, I mate, mean, can, okay, I just, yeah. can I just get your take on this, right? Oh, you're, yeah. You're, you know, you're you're out there in the mainstream media. Mm. What possesses West Tigers to make an announcement uh, that somebody's I, I, obviously, back? obviously, their manager, like their executive management, thought they'd nip it in the bud before the media can make a big deal out of it. But it just blew up in their face. Like, as a if you are a fan of a club. The last thing you want to be doing is essentially putting shit on yourself as a club 
by saying mm. that the most coveted you know coaching prospect the last few years that everyone's been talking up and that you clearly wanted has said no I don't think this is the right fit for me it's it's a bizarre one and, and I'm glad you guys asked about it because I, I was actually on air with the Papua New Guinean team when it came through and I saw it on Twitter and it said coaching announcement West Tigers I thought gee have they appointed a coach and when I opened it up and saw they basically said that we we reached out to Serrado and he knocked us back. I was stunned that they would go to the extent to do that. Now, based on the intel that I have um, through a couple of connections within the game, the Tigers have a hit list, or they had as of a week ago um, on fr- last Friday when I found out this information. The Tigers had a hit list for people. One of them was Serraldo. The other was Shane Flanagan and two others. I don't know who those two are. Right, so Flanagan is someone that the Tigers want. Serraldo was someone that they definitely wanted. But to do that, to come out and put a statement, I can, like, I don't know. I mean, that I can, I see where you're coming from. Uh, Forty twenty. I, I know what you're saying there, Jono, about how they wanted to nip it in the butt before it, it got bad, but it blew up in their face. Yeah. And, um, it's yeah. I mean, it's bizarre. I, I just think I don't. I'm actually um not surprised at Serraldo's decision because. No. He's got it. He's got something good out there at Penrith. He's the assistant in a premiership-winning team. They might win a couple more titles the next few years, and who knows what? Ha- like Ivan will well, be his, there. For his a while, stocks are not going you know? down at all if he stays at Penrith for another twelve months. Like it's not mm. going to hurt his value as a coach. So he, he it'll only of, increase his value. That's right. He's got the luxury to say, "I don't need this." Especially with, with what we've seen in the NRL in recent years. If you're a rookie coach and you pick the wrong assignment, it can mm. pretty much cost you a long-term career. You know, guys like that, Barrett, right? Yeah, exactly. If you if you pick the wrong club, get into the wrong situation, and you have a bad two or three years to open up your NRL career as a head coach, that might be it. Because the, mm. we, we talked about it, but the NRL, it's what have you done for me lately? You've got to win. And some of these rosters and some of these issues that you're dealing with on and off the field at some of these clubs, you can't win. You got, you got to walk in and it's a mammoth rebuild. So, yeah, I don't blame Serrato for knocking back the Tigers. You did mention they've got some good recruits coming there. Obviously, uh, uh, Paramateri or uh, Zai Papali'i and then uh, Api Corusau, they're both very good players. And then you look at the guys that are there, Hastings, uh, Dewey or Dwahi and uh, uh, Utuikamanu. Like there, there are some good pieces there, but there's just so much dogging this club uh, on and off the field from top to bottom. That's the problem. So... They've got to lock down a coach and time's running out. There's a ticking time bomb. They've got to get someone organized sooner rather than la- rather than later because and, uh, they're going to get beaten say, Can I just say too that anyone that they do organize knows they're not first choice now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's the trouble. That's the trouble. So yep. it's a, oh, it's a so, mess. So anyone that walks in there, unless it's uh, you know, one of the proven – uh, or, you know, no one values, you mentioned uh, Flano, there's also um, Paul, Paul Green, I suppose, is still out there too. Um, anyone that uh, outside of those guys knows that they're almost a stopgap. Like, they're, they're mm. not the, they weren't the first choice. Uh, they're they're going to be there, and unless they have any exceptional results, they're probably out in the street in a year or two. So, And yeah, just quickly, the, on, you got on uh, 60s? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, one of the things that, and and John was re- John was touching on this. There is there is obviously something inherently wrong within the club that's preventing them from improving. Because you're looking, you you spoke before about a couple of quality recruits going to the Tigers next year, and 
there's been many times that there's in the last few years where there's been almost a false dawn with them. Like this is going to be the year. This, you know, it's really gonna, it's really gonna pick up. But there's been different reasons, be it the the players or the change of coach or, or most recently bringing in Tim Sheens to oversee the whole thing. Whatever the case has been, there's been reasons for an improved season coming up. And invariably, the level of disappointment that the their supporters is feeling is it's been palpable. Like they, it's they just every year there's there's a failure to deliver from mm. them as a club. And and you have to look at um have they just have they made so many mistakes with coaching appointments? Have they made so many mistakes with their um their squad assembly? It's or, or is there something within the culture of the place that's bringing this about? I mean, we're on the outside there. We we don't know. All you all you know is that if you're a West Tiger supporter, you'd be thinking, when are we going to see the 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 club bottom out? Because this most recent announcement, you just feel like they found a new depth to go to. Um, yeah. Well. well... You'll see, look, recruitment-wise, you, you look at some of the guys on their roster because that's a big part of it. The coaching, I agree. Coaching is a big part of it. But I've heard Shane Flanagan say it, and I agree with him 100%. The cattle that they've got there are not good enough to be a top-18, and the people that have made the recruitment decisions at the Tigers are responsible. Bringing guys like Tyrone Peachy to the club on big-money contracts and, and then, you know, they're leaving, that's, they're, that's dumb. You know, they didn't, didn't even last a year. Or, didn't even last a it season. It didn't. I get crazy. And, you know, Russell Packer is another one. Josh Reynolds. Madalena. You look at it. They have made some very uh, un- not sensible, uh, illogical recruitment decisions over the last four or five years. For the first time next year, they're actually bringing good guys to the team. So this is the hope that Tigers fans are after. They now need to lock down a coach. But at the end of the day, uh, roster is key for the Tigers. And I think those two signings will make a difference. They might pick up a few more in the off season, and um, and yeah, they're gonna they're gonna want to improve because uh, yeah, they've been waiting a long time. Those Tigers fans, twenty eleven, the last time they played in a, a final series. Well, I, I can tell you that players and their managers aren't interested in going to a club that can't sort out their coach. Number one, no. and mm. if they if their coaching appointment is someone that doesn't inspire the thought that they are going to improve, they will continue to struggle in the recruitment front. And it, let's be honest, they've money's won out in their recruitment of both of those players for next year in, in both Ice and Coruscant, where the, the clubs that they're coming from in Penrith and Parramatta um, the Tigers were able to throw money at them that the the clubs couldn't match because of their other um, uh, uh, salary cap issues at the clubs. So um, you know, it's maybe they might pick up someone just virtually on the on the basis of being able to throw good money at them. But I mean, what happens with someone like Peachy? Like he's on, yeah. he's, on he's on on good money. And is anyone else going to pick him up? Is anyone else going to no, yeah. pay a significant amount of his salary? In all honesty, I mean, it might be easy to look at this in retrospect, but he was sure, given how 
things were panning out up at the uh, up at the Titans, he was the sort of player that you give him an opportunity to resurrect his career, not to keep him highly paid, and then give him make him part of the leadership team. I mean, it's made part. Just of, I don't understand. Like, and you know, and I don't want this to to come out sounding like the, you know this is a an attack on 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 Peachy because we know at his best he's a quality player, but his best has been some time ago, and mm. you know to put him in that leadership group like that that's the part that's the astounding part that he, like where he's looking you just want a bloke like him. You just want to say, look, mate, let's just concentrate on your footy. You know, you've got a lot of, you know, we, we want you back at the level of football that we know you can play at, but instead they burden him with the responsibility. Maybe he welcomed it, maybe he wanted it, but if he did want it, then he needed to be protected against his own instinct, I think. Um, but anyway, uh, sorry, mate, I interrupted you as you were sharing. No. No, I was just going to say, as we tie up the, the Tigers discussion point, Shane Flanagan, his name's being thrown around. A lot of people saying, yeah, he's going to he'll get this gig. I was sort of confident as well. I thought, you know, he's probably the, the best man for the job, someone that's experienced, got a bit of discipline, and he can really create opportunities um, with any set of players. You know, he's just such a smart coach. Uh, we spoke to Shane Flanagan on the Papua New Guinean Sports Breakfast Show last week. We had him on as a guest and I asked him a number of questions. And, and I, I did mention to him, uh, you know, his future coaching as a first grade um, uh, at, a, at, a, yeah, at a first grade level. And Flano said it, and he said, I, I know that he said this um, on the record in other places as well. That he's enjoying what he's doing now, doing a bit of media, doing being a, a list manager at the Dragons. Um, you know, he's doing his radios, TV and Papua New Guinea coaching uh, consultant and he's happy with that. You know, the pressure isn't there, the stress isn't there and I think um, part of me says that maybe Flanner will just sit out and just keep doing what he's doing and although he says coaching is what he loves and, and that's what he's done and he's interested in positions, I don't think he's going to be too upset either if he, if he misses out or uh, clubs don't decide to go with him because he's enjoying life uh, how it is now and stress-free and that's just about it. You know, if he, if he wants to coach, the opportunities I'm sure will be there because you've got a lot of clubs that need coaches. But um, And I'm sure he'll do a great job. But I think he's happy doing what he's doing now. Yeah, and you know what? There's something to be said about in any job being happy with what you're doing. And you'd have to say it's going to take the right, from what you're saying, it seems like it's going to take the right sort of offer to get him to consider changing doing what he's uh, enjoying at the moment. So, mm. um, you know, and, and look, he wouldn't be, if, if he was to continue doing that and maybe to build up his uh, work in the media, he's not going to be the, the, the first um, to have uh, decided to go down that path. There's, there's plenty of uh, former first grade coaches who have been happy to be assistant coaches mm. in, their, in their future careers. There's uh, plenty of former players and people involved in the game, they'd be happy to work in the media and, and get rid of all that stress of uh, running a first-grade team because, as everyone knows, um, and maybe people don't aren't fully aware of the scope of it, but being a first-grade NRL coach these days, it's um, you have I think you have to be a special person to be able to deal with all the stresses and, and, well, and how many How many NRL coaches can you name for a fat mane of hair? 
I think Desi might be the only <laughs> one, and he, he marches to the beat oh, of his own man. drums. There's a reason why they're all got a lack of the, the hair follicles on top. It is a high-stress uh, <laughs> environment. 100%. Now, mate, just to just to wrap things up, because uh, we, we, we'll we be doing our previews tomorrow, but we would like your uh, tips for this week. Uh, yep. On the Eels match against the Rabbitohs, a, a, a team that we don't have the greatest history against, uh, or recent history anyway. Looking forward to this one, guys, and I'm actually proud to uh, reveal to you guys and to all the Cumberland Throw listeners that I've actually been given the call up for 2GB uh, nice. to be a sideline eye for the Saturday night game at a core stadium. So, um, so really looking forward to uh, being there sideline and and uh, being right amongst it. I think, as you said, we've had a, a pretty average record against the Rabbitohs in the last few years, losing our past four against them. We lost both matches against the Bunnies last year convincingly, mm-hmm. and we'll be looking to turn it around. It'll be not the easiest mission because Latrell is back, and I, I just feel that the Bunnies team, they grow another leg when Latrell's there. So that'll be a challenge for us. And although Latron might not be back to his best and it'll take him a couple of weeks to get back into it because he hasn't played since round five, I just think having him there is going to help the Rabbitohs quite a lot. Um, I think Parramatta will win. And if they can play like they did against the Roosters at home that a couple of Saturday nights ago, I think we should be sweet. So Parramatta to win. I'm going to go um, Dylan Brown, man of the match, and Parramatta to win by 13-plus. So... A good game, and um, the one that I'm really looking forward to, I've had this match penciled in uh, or circled on the calendar for quite a long time, is next week's game. Tigers, Parramatta at Leichhardt Oval, and uh, I, I can't recall the last time we played the Tigers at Leichhardt, but I'm really pumped for that game. So this one, hopefully get the two points, move through to next week, and then enjoy the build-up to the, the big rivalry being relived and in uh, enemy territory. Mate, it's uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing about your experience there on the sideline. I just wanted to ask you, mm. uh, part of those sideline uh, eye duties, will you be looking to grab a, a quick couple of words with a player from either team as they come off the field? Um, at full time, there'll be uh, three interviews uh, which I'll conduct for the uh, for the continuous call team. So I'll, I'll be grabbing a word, most likely. Uh, at least two of the winning players and maybe one from the opposing team. Halftime's a little bit tricky, but um, I, I do know Tamara quite well. So I might have a quick chat to her and see if possibly I could get a quick word uh, before half time as, as the players walk into the sheds as well. Mate, uh, brilliant opportunity, brilliant experience for you. Um, looking forward to uh, catching that. I'd- hey, and before, before we finish up as well, um, because I know this is a really newsy segment, I've got a bit of inside word about the Bulldogs and about their situation before we wrap up. And I know this is a long podcast, but I really want to share this with you guys exclusively and also with the Cumberland Throw listeners exclusively. Uh, I've got a bit of intel and the inside word that I'm receiving around the coaching uh, situation there at the moment is that Craig Sandercock, who is currently the assistant coach, is pulling most of the strings at the Bulldogs right now. Mick Potter not doing as much. He's more sort of overseeing everything. But Craig Sandercock is the one that's redrafted the tactics. Um, he's, you know, reshuffled things with, or, you know, slightly changed the attacking structures of the dogs. You can see they're scoring more points. Mm-hmm. 
And from what I'm, I've been told, Trent Barrett, when he was at the Bulldogs, was too focused on trying to coach them like they were Penrith, right? So he yep. was too focused. It, it was yeah. too focused on that, it, it's, and that's uh, why you know? it's not the first time. This isn't a Trent Barrett thing, but with all of young coaches or new coaches, it's one of the big issues they run into is that they will come from a system where they want to then make the system work with another team. But sometimes you've got to look at the cattle that you've got and adapt your structures to what you have rather than what you want. And then eventually, it, eventually you get to what you want with recruitment and development. But it's a uh, it's about you know adapting. Yeah, and that's mm. one of the one of uh, the stories that we heard coming out of Stephen Kearney's experience yeah. with the Eels yeah, exactly. that he was trying to make the Melbourne Storm system fit the cattle that he had at Parramatta, and as we know, with respect, back at that time, uh, that cattle turned into wooden spoon material. So, yeah. and, and whether they would have been wooden spoon material under a different coach is. Um, is debatable. Uh, I think the fact that Ricky Stewart came there after Kearney and had exactly the same result with the cattle that he had there um, says that um, you know coaches coming there and maybe trying to fit their systems with the players that were there, um, it, it didn't work. And and I think to that end as well, you had Brad uh, Arthur essentially inheriting that wooden spoon roster again and immediately taking them off the bottom of the table. So, um, you know, he even though he came from the Melbourne Storm system, he wasn't really implementing a Melbourne Storm way of playing. So, um, yeah, it, mate, that's, that's tremendous feedback. And you know what? I think mm. if the players are aware of that, I'm, I'm not sorry, not, that, not aware of it. I mean, if the players are, I should say, appreciative of what the um that Craig Sandicott is doing, then mm. um, you know, it might be it might be interesting because um again this relates back to uh, BA, but if you if we remember, Jason Taylor was literally announced as the Eels coach until the Parramatta players approached club management and said that they wanted Brad Arthur there. And that was based on their experience with him uh, with him as the assistant coach and then as the interim coach uh, when Kearney left. So mm. you, had the, you had the key players there saying, this is the this is the coach that we would much prefer to work with based on our experience with him. So, you know, who knows? That might turn out to be influential in Canterbury's coaching decisions down the track. Could be that, uh, who knows, there, there might be... Uh, a candidate there that they that the media hadn't really been considering as a as an option for Canterbury. I, I could definitely see Canterbury going for a bridging coach too, where they'll offer something, whether it's Sandercock or someone similar, where they it sort of is a club based option. Like maybe it's like a, a two plus two or a two plus one or a one plus two with co- uh, club options on the backside, so they get the flexibility of giving a a guy like Sandercock the option if he's working well. Or and if he's good, they can just take up the option and, and go with it. Or we can then go back to the market and find someone else. So be very interested to see how that plays out. That may very well be the option that the Bulldogs look to explore. But I still like what we've spoken about in the past, having Mick Potter there as the head coach. And the reason why I think he's going to be a good option for them is, first of all, 
his Bulldogs DNA. He's had experience playing at the club and understanding what the the team and the the whole culture is all about. But he's also had experience coaching at the first grade level. So they might not get a guy like Sandercock to be the head coach. They might have him as the assistant and Mick as the head coach, and they both do their thing. And maybe that works for the dogs. Maybe that's what they need. So uh, watch this space. Well, thanks for that, mate. And as always, we're finding out just a little bit more about what's happening behind the scenes with your Behind the Mic segment on the tip sheet. So thanks thanks again, mate. Uh, best wishes for that uh, sideline eye job this Saturday night at, uh, at Acor Stadium. Uh, good luck with that, and we look forward to speaking with you next week. And before you go, yeah. mate, you mentioned that you couldn't yeah. remember the last time we played at Leichhardt Oval against the Tigers. I had a quick look, and if my research is right, we go back to 2013 where we lost 31-18. Try scorers from the Eels that day, Jacob Loco, Ryan Morgan, and Vitauti. Uh, Chris was Sander. it a Monday night game? Uh, that was Friday the 22nd of March. Friday. So, okay. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I wasn't there that night. Shane so, um, Hayne was holding the whistle. Alan Shortall was the uh, backup ref because we had the two refs back then. Yep. Uh, a crowd of just over 18,000. Yeah. So look, look at that uh, team. What have mm. we got? Uh, Hayne, Tautai, Morgan, Loco, Chase Blair, Ben, <laughs> ben Roberts and Chris Sando on the halves. Jeez, things have come a long way for the club. Ben Roberts. Ben Roberts in – oh, man. That's yeah. – uh, that's um, Renny Matur was the captain back then. Wow. So – Who was the captain? Renny Matur. Yeah. Wow, so Hindy must have been sitting out that game. Or was yeah, he retired? Oh, he retired. Yeah, yeah, he retired. retired. Yeah. 2012 or 11. Wow, that's um blast from the past. Some of those names, it, <laughs> um, it brings back memories for me as a kid going to Parramatta Stadium, sitting in the Mick Cronin stand, getting one of those programs. You guys would remember yep. there used to be those programs they used to uh, hand out, which were, were really nice, and, um, and watching, unfortunately, Parramatta lose a lot of games. But I've stuck by them. And they're finally coming good. So even, um, yeah, even the names for the, the Tigers week. back then are crazy because obviously that was still the Farrah Marshall era. But yeah, Tim Moulton, Joel Reddy was a Tiger back then. Uh, oh, man, I remember was when he was club. a Parra boy. Yeah, Corabetti was still at the club. Uh, Aaron Woods, Brayford Nasta, Liam Fulton, Adam Blair. Tedesco? Uh, Teddy, no, Tim Moulton was playing fullback that game. So I don't know if Teddy was hurt. Yeah. He must have been hurt. Injured? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Wow, blast from the past. Yep. And yeah, and can I tell you the only the main thing I um, think about whenever Joel Reddy's name is mentioned, Joel was Reddy his little this. was his little dance move when you go Joel Reddy for this. Yep. He was, you know, he was actually one of my favourite players growing up. Um, I started because I started following Parramatta in about oh nine when we when we made it to the GF, mm-hmm. and um, I really liked him, and I actually. Um, I met him when he was then at the Tigers, but I still got a photo with him and got an autograph, uh, a poster autograph, because I loved him so much. So, yeah, I'm a big Joel Reddy fan. Well, mate, he, he look, he was his absence on the field in, in the, the 09 Grand in 2009 yep. was basically gave the the Storm a try. Uh, look, he he was a he was more than just a steady player. With 136 games, 51 tries. Played a few New South Wales City games. That's a pretty solid career when all is said and done. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, he was uh, most dominant at Parra. I know he had a stint at um, the Bunnies as well. So, but by far, his time at the Eels was was a highlight of his career. Mm-hmm. And I think I saw him. It would have been opening day of. Um, uh, it would have been Bank West at the time, Bank West Stadium. He was just sitting in the crowd with his kids as a punter, enjoying that match. So, 
uh, yeah, nice to reminisce on a Parramatta legend. Maybe we maybe we have to do this uh, as part of our weekly yeah, just segment. every we now and then just, just choose a player that we have some fond memories of. It'd be all right. Yeah, sounds good, mate. Sounds good. Sounds good, guys. Uh, enjoy the week. Enjoy the game. Go, Para. I've got to see. The hard thing is, I've got to try and not be biased, um, <laughs> which I, which you know, I I will ensure. You know, you know what? Job, job I, comes first. I, I, I always thought Andy Raymond in his role as a sideline. I brought a good amount of passion for the Eels. Uh, without being too biased, so maybe channel his spirit. Oh, he's I'm, I'm a big fan of Andy Raymond. He does a great job uh, doing a, a podcast these days, uh, and which is great, unfiltered. But yeah, I agree. He was an awesome sideline. I loved him. Okay, cheers, mate. We'll catch you next week. Good to chat, guys. As always, an absolute blast to have Spiro on the show, 60s. Before we do wrap things up, a few things to chew to fat with with you. Looking back at the week that was in representative football, uh, for the Parramatta Eels and beyond. Let's start with the fallout or review of uh, between the two of us of Origin 2, Adam Perth, mate, because I feel like we've got some interesting takes on uh, maybe contrary to um, what some of the media is saying. Yeah, mate, it's I, I feel like if we explore some of our thoughts that it's, it is going to be so contrary to some of the media opinion and... I feel like we we had concerns going into Origin 2 and the, the take might be, oh, well, you got it wrong. And my concern is that I still think that Fiddler got it wrong. Yeah. And it just looks it, – it looks like he got it so right. And oh. I'm, I, I'm not backing away from my thoughts that I think he got the selections wrong. Yeah, I, in a way – as a New South Welsh, I'm obviously happy they got the big win. It was a huge yeah, win. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. I, I'm sitting here as a rugby league fan frustrated that bad processes, in my opinion, were rewarded with such a good result. Because I look at the people they brought in, and certainly across them there were some players that had good games. Appy Coruscant, uh, State of Origin debut, wasn't it? He, he had a really solid game at dummy half. Um, I thought, you know, putting Cameron Murray into the starting team, that was fine. He was obviously now match fit, had a good game. Um, I looked to the bench, Damian Cook... Uh, was better as a, as a substitute dummy half. Uh, but then I look at the other – and, and and the other one too, Jake Dubovic had a decent game. He had a good game, but we'll talk about that later. But then the big difference between State of Origin 1 and State of Origin 2 is that the core players that were absolutely dog water in game one were really good game two. And yeah, you- and, and I think this is where we had the upset with the process because the team needed a little tweak. Yeah. And, and also to give the players the opportunity to step up in game two, which they did. And that was the thing. We were expecting them to step up and have better games, you know, a lot of those core players in game two. Anyone that thought Cleary was going to play like he did in game one. Yeah, he, he literally had a career, career worst game almost in game yeah. one. Like you look at his NRL level stuff and that origin game would be among his like bottom five games. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I I expected he was going to have a, a massive bounce back yeah. in game two, yeah. and was going to be a, a, a key player. And, and and to that end, the inclusion of Coruscant was something that I welcomed because I thought that in game one that the service just wasn't there, and I thought that, that when you had the service that wasn't quite there from, um, but it from wasn't it wasn't even Cook. just the service wasn't there. Cook was actively. I wouldn't say like deliberately sabotaging because he obviously won the win, but he was just panicked out there. He would run to the left, stop, pirouette, and then pass back to a, 
a, a defensive line racing up into the face of his the man trying to catch the ball. It was just absolute disaster. And, and that extends to Parramatta's own Junior Barlow, who in game one, we, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say as uh, lambasted, but we certainly were critical of his performance where it was far too pass-heavy. And in this game, he came off the bench and was just the enforcer. He just dominated. And, yeah. and that, you know, that including what was pivotal in getting uh, Felice Kafusi Simbin of a huge run that he nearly scored off of, uh, all those core players that were terrible or bad or mediocre in game one, they were given the chance for redemption. And they turned around game two, which is why we're frustrated because not just from Parramatta's perspective where you had Ryan Madison and uh, Big Red dropped uh, almost unfairly, but you could just look at that team and say they were lost by one try in a game where they clearly played so far below what they were capable of. Why would you yeah, just give yeah. another chance? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it was, and again, we come back to what you said about the, about the process there where those changes that he, that, that uh, Fittler brought in, uh, we're, we're not critical in saying that he, he brought in players that uh, weren't worthy of, of origin selection. What we're critical of is the fact that there was changes that were made that didn't need to be made, and, and, and it could have gone belly up it, with, with the combinations not, being, uh, not having time to click in, that, in, the, in the quick turnaround. But uh, I think the other factor as well is, is that and due to, whether it be due to circumstance of the way that the game played out and the workload that was there on, on the Queenslanders, but they weren't a shadow on who they were in game no, one. Yeah, exactly. It was almost like a complete reversal of just the the entire approach. It was the Blues making one-on-one strips. We saw Junior Barlow make a one-on-one strip. Like, you know, I'd love to see him bring that back to club football, I'll tell you what. But you look at that, you just look at the minutes from the New South Wales Blues 60s and, you know, Talakai, who was heralded as a, a great pick by a big portion of the media because he was he's had explosive moments for the Cronulla Sharks. He played, was it 16 minutes? Or is he 17 minutes off the bench and had four runs for 30 metres. You had Angus Crichton come on for 34 minutes and make six runs for 60 metres, 67 metres, sorry. Uh, it just feels like those changes were changes made for the sake of making change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you are looking at... The just on on the just on a pure stats basis, there was the contribution from the players that were included. They weren't influential in the match and how the match panned out. What was influential was those core players that didn't, as you said, that 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 had ordinary games in game one, had far better games in game two, and that to me is the story of Origin two. Yeah, 100%. And that's why I come back to the idea that bad processes were rewarded with a really good result. Because yeah, once yeah. again, I mean, the, was... core, the core of a team is just that good. And, you know, Jake Tabojevic has garnered a lot of praise. I thought he had a good game. But, you know, he, he, got, he got the play 71 minutes, which I know is a testament to his engine. But in origin, it's very rare to see a forward go that long because you need to be rotating forwards. And it, it felt like Freddie got away with that too. But he had 17 carries, 148 metres with 31 tackles, I want to say. Zero missed, one ineffective. So obviously a really good game. But I just feel like sometimes the numbers didn't add up to what I was seeing on the field. I feel like he had one strong run in that 148 metres. So I don't know. Maybe yeah, look, it was it, what he produced was a solid performance. Yeah, it's not like he had a bad game. It's just that, I don't, I don't know, 71 minutes 
when you've got guys like, or well, Payne Haas had an injury, which I, I suppose contributed to it too, but it comes back to that bench composition. You didn't have a prop on the bench outside of junior. So you, you had no flexibility to work around that. So that, once again, bad process. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, Jake Trevojevic, he, he, he did the job which was expected of him, which was basically to tackle. Like I think he was just brought in to tackle, and he just tackled. Um, as far as the running metres are concerned, what are you talking about? An average of about eight metres per run? Yep. Something like that. Um, if that, it might be somewhere between seven and eight metres per run. Um, I, I feel that he's sort of got that knack of just simply getting down onto his front really quickly. I, I was surprised by the post-contact metres he was credited with because it seemed to me that when that first contact was made on him, that his next thought was really getting to a quick fight, play. Fight the to the run, ground and get, get the quick play the ball, yeah. So, and again, like that, uh, you'd have to say our own Tim Manor, that was, that was something that he was credited for uh, bringing into origin football was that really quick play of the ball where he could find his front really quickly off a carry so that the, um, the defence was um, still in that process of retreating backwards when the play of the ball was happening. Um, now, if that's if that's the case and that's what Fittler wants out of uh, one of his key forwards, like a prop, a prop forward, to be making an average of seven or eight metres per run and just to simply get a, a quick play of the ball and, he, and, and to make lots of tackles, then that's exactly what Jake Trebojevic provided. And um, and if that if that was the game plan, he provided that. Well, I'd say good on him. So, mm-hmm. um, but as we say, the really the the ones that won the game, the players that won the game for New South Wales were the key players that didn't have good games in game one. Yeah, and, and that's really what it boils down to. And on the on the flip side, for the Queenslanders, their big players had quiet games. And that's part of the reason why in the second half we saw the Blues run away with it. But yeah, I mean, very happy to get the win. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in Origin 3. Uh, there's going to be a bit of a drama around the centres, it looks like, 60s, with Matt Burton having a strong debut, figured very prominently in the kicking plan, um, and did that very effectively with that wicked top bomb that he executes so well. But with uh, Jack White, who was uh, probably inarguably our best in Game 1, uh, going to be back from that COVID break, there's going to be a bit of a dilemma in the centres. And, and to be honest, I thought Stephen Crichton was pretty not great. So maybe that sort of fixes itself there. Although then you've got the issue of um, playing someone on the right edge. And we saw that Whiten didn't do so well as a right centre last series. Uh, whereas down the left, we, it's his preferred side. He was much, much better. Well, does does one of those players get Talakai's spot on the bench? True. Uh, or you just put White into Talakai spot, I suppose, is the other option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, uh, White, White obviously covers what fullbacks, centres, halves. He could easily play back row if you needed him to as well. Uh, he's yeah. a big unit, so maybe that's uh, probably the easiest solution. Yeah, well, you know, you're basically talking about two players who uh, in each match were uh, amongst the best on field for the Blues. So that is a that's probably one of those selection headaches that a coach prefers to have. Yeah. See, that that's where you can have a, a, a tough process rather than a bad process, trying to make the, the call there. 
But uh, that'll be interesting to follow through game three. I don't think there's too much that's going to change there. I mean, Payne Haas has got a bit of an injury cloud over him right now. I'm not sure what the prognosis is in terms of origin free. But you've got to think Appy Coruscant holds his spot as starting dummy half. Cook on the bench will probably be there as the relief uh, rake. And then, yeah, I mean, Crichton, Talakai, they're both probably not secure, I'd say, in their spots. But I think the rest of the team now, given that, you know, Jake Dubois, which had a solid game, he's going to be there. So just centres on injury cloud suspensions that come during the uh, NRL uh, games, although we do have that changed mandate uh, where players don't get as heavy a suspension ahead of origin or coming out of origin. We saw that in play for Mac Hesse Makatola 60s. He got yeah. a grade two dangerous contact charge, which I think carries a base two-week suspension for the NRL, but he only gets a fine. I think it was 12% of his match fee or 18% of his match fee. So, yeah. Speaking... Um, just and, and sorry, just before just before you go on, um, I, I, and I'm, I'm now going to um, stay with the same mantra of advocating that it, it's only force changes that happens to the New South Wales team because I didn't want to see the changes, uh, uh, the the large number of changes from game one, even yeah, though there was a lot. That, that's why and it's so frustrating. That's, that's right. That's that's why it's so frustrating for guys like Reg and Maddo who were very hard done by it because they could have easily been another core piece of a big win in Perth had they been given the opportunity. Yeah, and, that, that's right. And so for that reason, I'm, I'm calling that the majority of those players – Retain their place for Game Three, mm-hmm. and uh, and because uh, for me, this is a this is where that the process has to be better. I, I don't want to see changes unless they are absolutely necessary, or, or someone has an, an absolute shocker of a game. And um, and again, we come back to the the process was wrong. Um, the process was rewarded. But it doesn't mean that we, you know, we think that this should be what happens again in the future. It should be that the players who've earned the right to be there, unless they've done something terribly wrong, should, you know, you've, you've got to keep the faith in them because they, they were selected for a reason. Now, um, can I get an early tip from you then for Origin 3? Uh, I mean, we've, we've seen this before. Blues get a bit of momentum back in game two. You've got to go up to Queensland, and it's so tough. Uh, I, I'd, I would obviously love to see a, season, a series victory there, but, mate, having to clinch it up at Suncorp, it's going to be a hostile crowd. It's already a sellout weeks in advance. Uh, mate, uh, I, I will tip the Blues to win, but I would not be shocked if they got rolled. I feel like the Blues either win tight or Queensland roll us. Does it come down to Munster playing or not playing? That, I mean, that that would be huge. If, if Munster is out, because I know that's the uh, issue this week for the Melbourne Storm, uh, but if he is out, that tips the scales massively. He is such a big game player, not just for club level, but at state of origin. And he's the sort of player that when you look at the breakdown of a tape, there are just key moments where he has made a play, whether it's with the ball in hand or in defense of that uh, incredible ability to reef the ball out one-on-one. So if he is under significant doubt, then all of a sudden New South Wales firm significantly. Yeah. Now, um, I I think it's going to be a tough match for New South Wales to win as well. 
I think it's going to be a six-point ball game, and I'm I'm not at this stage prepared to go an early tip, mainly because of that question that I posed yeah, to you see about how the, teams, the team shape up exactly. Yep, yep. yep. Um, now, just the last thing that I wanted to throw to you because you raised this about the tackles, Nathan Cleary's shot. That uh, yeah, he ended up getting put on report for it. Um, Watching it live, I just didn't see anything in it. I, I haven't had a good a chance to go back and have a good look at it, but I was kind of surprised that he was sighted. Uh, mate, did I miss something? Yes, you did. I did? Yep, yep. Very clear shoulder contact to the head. Um, if, if, Junior, if, if Junior got the suspension that he received for his tackle, which... On uh, AJ Brimson, right? Yep, yep, which... Which shoulder to shoulder. I think we agreed it was yeah, shoulder to shoulder sort of contact. Uh this was really crystal clear. There you go. Uh, so I think again that fits into that uh the way that it's seen in origin games compared to normal uh club rounds. If that was a club round, and I mean mind you if it was a club round and it wasn't a protected player, how many weeks would you be expecting? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm not prepared to say that if Nathan Cleary puts that tackle on in a club game that he cops a suspension, but I think if um, I would expect a tackle like that, based on what happened with Junior Polo earlier this season, that it would attract a suspension. So, um, yeah, yeah, just um, that was just that one other take that I had out of it because I was looking at that tackle yesterday. And I thought to myself, "You're very lucky there, mate." That's it's not that mean, was, like I said. I, I didn't get a chance to have a good look at the replay, so I was surprised when he was cited. But given your perspective on it, it makes a lot of sense. But it's not the first time that Cleary would have had a high shot or a shoulder charge overlooked. I, I think with Penrith earlier this year, he had a pretty clear shoulder charge that was not cited or was given a really minor citation. Uh, for that, and it's it's part of that whole inconsistency with the MRC and the judiciary. That and it's not you know just related to Cleary. This is just across every team. There are some players that get harder calls or, or harder citations, and some players that don't. And it's, I'm almost prepared to throw the media into that as well. Oh, absolutely. In, in, that, in terms of what they put the focus on, yeah, absolutely. If, I think if there was if there were certain players that put I that mean, tackle on, arguably the probably the most important in terms of shaping the narrative show in rugby league is NRL three hundred and sixty, and you can just when when they highlight something, it just generates a few like you know not not necessarily a few role, but the sort of focus that then creates articles, then gets the conversation just churning and driving and and sort of like feeding itself. So it depend, if they want to highlight a certain player, and we've seen it in the past, some players deserve it. Felice Kafusi, uh, for example, has obviously got a bit of a reputation now, and we've seen it with Ryan Madison, uh, and that you know that can certainly generate some uh, media uh, cycle there. But other times, there's other players that you know just get called out, even when it's something fairly innocuous. Yeah, yeah. All righty, sixties. Uh, let's uh, continue with the rep theme breakdown. I think it was 23 Parramatta Eels on show across the weekend. We already talked about Junior Barlow being sensational for the Blues off the bench. Another player I wanted to talk about with you was young Dylan Brown making his international debut alongside teammates Murata Niakore, also debuting for the Kiwis, although he has played for the Cook Islands in the past, and uh, Azai Papali. He was part of that 26-6 div- 
26 to 6 victory for the Kiwis over the Matemaa Tonga. And I thought Dill was really, really good. A couple of try assists, uh, heavily involved, had a great combination with Jerome Hughes. They had that, it looked like they sort of almost had like that Melbourne Storm preparation. They were kicking for each other, had great sync despite just being in that one week training period. And it, it was sort of the, the kind of debut that you'd been dreaming for Dylan to have, given the sort of player we know he's, he is. Did it look like his first test? Yeah, well, didn't that, look that's like the his thing. First test if, you, if you didn't know it was his debut, you'd say, well, this guy's just a season pro at this level. Yeah, yeah. He, that was my take out of it, was it was just such a composed performance. And when, you, when the camera panned onto him during the anthems and he was smiling, and I thought, he looks really relaxed, yeah. doesn't he? Right, right now it's and then when you went further along the lines and you saw Marada was in tears and uh, Brandon Smith was in tears during the uh, anthems. There was a, there was a lot of emotion in rep round this year, wasn't there? there was oh, a, absolutely. Josh Josh Schuster, I think, as well, turning out for Samoa. Uh, yeah, he he had uh, a lot of emotion during the anthem too. So uh, we we spoke highly about how anticipated this week or the week that was. Uh, would be for us, and the players certainly delivered. Yeah, I think Dylan was really part of a spine that is truly going to challenge Australia yeah. in the World the, Cup. The Kiwis have got something cooking right there, I can tell you that. Oh, their their team, and, and you'd have to say as well that, uh, just quickly, that uh, both Ice and Murata did the jobs that were you know, that they were brought in to do in yeah, fact it 100%. just looked like you, you looked at the New Zealand team and I know it's international football and you shouldn't be saying this but I, I couldn't see a weakness across the team no, I, I just yeah, thought it was really good back I thought line, it was terrific selections mm-hmm. yeah terrific selections players being available which is a, obviously that's a key part is that players have made themselves available or, or they can't find a reason to not be available for it that it was a match that really meant something to those players and and really as well for no football to have been in New Zealand for the last couple of years, you can see why there would have been that emotion about playing over there. And even though the the numbers in the stands certainly heavily favoured the Tongan uh, How about side. The Tongan? I mean, supporters. and I, I think part of the optical illusion of the black sort of filling in around the red means that the Tongans were far more visible but the time of presence for those these games is incredible like, oh ab- absolutely absolutely incredible but there's been a lot of hype around the tongan team and about their climb up the nrl inter- well the rugby league international rankings and there's probably going to be some players available for them that weren't uh, during the world cup that weren't available for this particular match but i looked at that and i thought there was a, a definite class distinction well, especially around the spine that, that was the theme for rep round was the haves and have nots when it came to the spine which did lead to a few upsets before we talk about that uh i know he's one of your favorite players outside the blue and gold although he does wear the wrong sort of colors red white and blue but how about joey manu over 400 running meters heavily involved throughout the entire game i suppose the only criticism is that he can be a little bit run first as a fullback and doesn't always look to link up. But when you're running for 400 metres and having a huge impact on the game, uh, yeah, he is a heck of a player. And it's incredible that uh, he is locked out of full... I mean, I understand why he's locked out of fullback at the Roosters, but the fact that they've got him and Joseph Sawali as well as James Desco there is just ridiculous. 
Well, you know my opinion on Manu. I I wrote on it last year that mm-hmm. he had to be a player that Parramatta basically went to with an open checkbook. Yes, you know, like just he's that like, good. Yeah. Name your name your price, and we'll pay you because to me he is that good. I think the Roosters are now talking about playing him in the halves. He's He's a weapon out there at centre. He's was always going to be a weapon getting his hands on the ball even more in a spine position. So, um, I mean, how how are the Roosters looking where they have Tedesco as a fullback? Then you've got someone else who should be a fullback in Joey Manu. And then you've got another bloke out on the wing who's probably a fullback of the future in Joseph Suwali. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, they're, they're absolutely an blessed. embarrassment of riches. Yeah, exactly. An embarrassment of riches. Please not let. Let's not forget to talk about the Matt Lodge issue as well. Um, we 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 must talk about that before we wrap up today. Yeah, yeah. So let's get let's go for the international footy quickly, and then we'll wrap up with um, some Parramatta signing news and the Matt Lodge issue. Uh, but like I said, the theme of this week for wrap round was the spine, wasn't it? As we saw. Uh, the Cook Islands rolled by Samoa, where we had Anthony Milford having an absolutely sensational game at the international level. Probably the biggest upset uh, in terms of on paper, although we did speak about it in our previews. We did tip Fiji the win, but we did mention that with, uh, was it Labutt and uh, Lamb, I think it was? Yeah, yeah. Kyle Labutt uh, and Lamb, they had two proper experienced halves, and that could be the difference. And I'll tell you what, it was. The Papua New, Guinea, uh, Papua New Guinean team running out 24 to 14 victors in a big upset victory over the Fijians, over the Bati. And yeah, Laybutt and Lamb were the difference. Oh, there just was, there was absolutely no quality ball for Kikau and the Fijian outside backs. Kikau, Blake, Sivo, Ravalawa. It, it was a really good like set of edges there for Fiji, just they could not get the ball, they could not contest field position and territory because the the ruck clearing and, and the fifth tackle options weren't good enough. You'd you'd be looking at, as you say, the, the experience in the in the halves, well the comparative experience between the two teams. And then you're also looking at the the players who have that I suppose that experience of playing together as well within the Papua New Guinea team. So it was a, although on paper it looked like a Fijian victory. And we did mention this in the preview about Fiji has disappointed at this level in the past before, and it had come down to a question of the halves, where they've disappointed in the past. So, um, and, and really, unless they can either A, find some halves, or B, find a way to get the ball to their strike players, I, I don't see their fortune changing. No, not at all. And and that's going to be like you, you alluded to earlier. I know that Tonga mentioned in their post game they're going to have more players available they feel can make a difference in the spine for the World Cup. But you need them available consistently if you're going to be an international yes. force. And that's why it feels like New Zealand are now positioned to really make a tilt at Australia to be the number one uh, number one test country in rugby league. Yeah. Uh, yep. Speaking of the Fijian team, uh, one player that caught my eye was uh, young Sunia Taruva, who I think is a Penrith Panther. He was playing fullback for the uh, Barty, but plays centre most weeks for Penrith, given who they've got available there in the reserve grade team. I thought he was pretty good. Um, the Eels boys were okay. Uh, I thought Mike had a good uh, amount of involvement as a winger. 
I mean, Wanga could only do what he could do, uh, given that the ball wasn't coming his way much. Yeah, and that's uh, that was it for the Parramatta boys. But yeah, very, very fun week of football. New South Wales going 4-0 and across the 19s, uh, boys and girls, the women's and men's games. So that was good to see. Uh, oh, can I just very quickly um, mention the Cook Islands match? Now, again, this, the, the class difference between the Cook Islands and Samoa was vast. In fact, I, you, if you were Samoa, you probably wanted them to do a bigger job on the Cook Islands team than what they did, given that there were players that were being hauled out of uh, New Zealand club rugby to play for the Cook Islands. Second half of the Cook but, Islands was gutsy, though. Oh, look, absolutely, absolutely. But I just wanted to lay this on people. This is a rough, and it still comes down to an issue around the halves, the, sorry, around the spine, um, but particularly at, at half and 5'8". Um, well, no, let's, let's narrow it down right down to half. If, if everyone was available and declared themselves available for the Cook Islands, this is the team that the Cook Islands could field. Charles Nickel Klockstad, Jordan Rapana, Valentine Holmes, Murata Nukore, Isan Masters. Now I've selected Joseph Manu at five eight. I've <laughs> I've now this is where there were no halves. I've I've selected Brad Takarangi at halfback. The the front row, James Tarmow and Josh Papali'i. And again, here's the problem. There, there basically isn't a dummy half with mm-hmm. NRL experience. So I, I bracketed the ones that they use in the halves and, and dummy half in Reese Joyce and uh, Tinaru Arona there. But just moving on with the back row, Rabadi and Piakura, Maka at lock, mm-hmm. and then a bench of Francis Molo, Tepai Moroa, uh, Davi Moala and Zane Tedavano. And I've bracketed uh, Kenny Edwards as the 18th man. Now, that would be a very competitive Cook Islands team. Very. Yeah, like you mentioned, outside of halfback and dummy half, which is obviously significant hurdles. But you look at the rest of that roster, and it's uh, probably uh, nearly as good as the Tongan roster, right? Uh, yeah. If not, if not better in certain areas. I mean, Joey Manu is a hell of a player. We talked about him. Plus, a stack of those forwards are uh, more than competitive. Uh, but this, on two fronts, speaks to the issues confronting a lot of the smaller teams, dual eligibility for the bigger countries, whether it's Australia, which we've seen with State of Origin being uh, a big magnet for certain players, and that's been improved somewhat with the eligibility uh, stuff being relaxed for second-tier countries. So you can play Origin for New South Wales or Queensland, but also be eligible for uh, Samoa, Cook Islands, etc. But the other side is uh, just the, the lack of playmakers for these teams. That are, that are eligible. I mean, Joey Manu would carry a lot of the weight in this team. He's that good. But yeah, you just, we, we need more dummy halves, more halfbacks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, and that, that's, that's arguably an NRL issue as well. Like, it's yeah. funny, we talk about this issue with the, the second-tier countries, but how many NRL teams have a great halfback and a great dummy half or a very good dumb, uh, or a very good pairing in that regard? It, it is just there is a dirt for talent at those roles in general. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely true. All righty. So that wraps up the international week and the representative week of football. It was a very, very fun week. A lot of great results. Very good to see the Blues sweep the uh, Maroons across all levels, although game three looms for the men uh, at Suncorp in a couple of weeks. 
We talked about. Oh, Mary. and 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 can I just say as well? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put forward what might be a controversial point. I thought that the standard of the under 19s, especially in the women's in the Origin match, was so high that I thought it challenged the women's Origin in terms of a spectacle to watch. I I don't know if it was because they knew they were on national TV, they were being broadcasted live, but it sure felt like both those teams, oh, sorry, both sets of the two teams across the the games uh, brought everything, and it was really, really good to see. Obviously, the Eels had, how many reps was it? Was it six reps in the women's team? When you factor in players that play for Tushgale plus players that we'd recruited. Yeah, yep. So a whole stack of talent on show there for the Eels. And then uh, off the bench, the, the men's or young boys team, sorry, young men's or older boys team, uh, Larry Mwaga Tutia had a good game. And, yeah, it, I mean, this is something we've been pushing for a long time, 60s, is having these games broadcast, having these games live-streamed. And like I said, they all lifted to the bright lights. So they're very yeah, good to and, see. Yeah, and we did – and we had covered it in a in a, um, a wrap-up on uh, last Friday's Correct. podcast. Correct, that's the, right. The, the age origin uh, matches. But I just – Given that we were able to make that comparison with the open age origin with the women's, that I think it augurs well for the standard of the women's game when you when you saw the standard of the 19s. I just think the skill level that's coming in is phenomenal. The athleticism that's coming in is phenomenal in the in those younger age groups. So, um, yeah, a lot to look forward to there. Yeah, and it is an important thing to note because of expansion coming to the NRL in the form of the Dolphins, they're going to need more and more high-quality youngsters to support all, what, 17 franchises and eventually 18 because you can't have an odd number of teams in the long run. You're going to want to have an even number of teams so you can actually schedule buys or stagger buys across a healthier period instead of having a round one buy. That's right, yep. Uh, so we already mentioned in the recent podcast, Parramatta has been busy on the recruitment and retention front. Obviously, Ryan Madison re-upping, uh, picking up a young forward, Jaira Momosia. Uh, rugby League Weeks, or former Rugby League Weeks, uh, Mole, he's now, what, uh, nine World of Sports, uh, has uh, this week uh, tipped that the Eels are signing a young prop. Uh, I, I don't think he's affiliated with the Dragons. I think he comes from their catchment, uh, Jack Burrows. I think he's going to join the SG Ball squad in a couple-year deal. Seems to have some good reps. Uh, has played for Parramatta Eels prospect Charlie Geimer, who we speak about fairly regularly, given that he's been a, a big part of the SG Ball and flag teams across this year and last. Uh, but he was part of his uh, St. Greg's college team, so I imagine he would have been scouted during the process of uh, looking after Charlie. Yeah, yeah. Not As you say, not a huge amount that we know of him at this stage, but if the Eels have looked at him as external recruitment and uh, and that's uh, out there now, then look, he's obviously got some talent. I saw a picture of him in the team. He's a big unit. Got good size, so be interesting to see what we have to work with when he joins the team officially next year. Yeah, um, and we, if he's playing SG ball, we'll get to have a, an early look at him via the trials correct. that we cut on, on yeah, which, TCT. Which so. will happen later this year, I want to say. Yep. Yep, so just mark that down. Uh, people, don't forget that uh, TCT covers everything Parramatta Reels from junior reps all the way through, and we, we try to get out there for all the junior rep trials and provide a report on the on the on as many of the players as we can from those trials. Yes, sir. And then tangentially related to the Parramatta Reels, given that we've been linked to him 
uh, throughout this entire process. And you mentioned him before, 60s, but Matt Lodge joining the Sydney Roosters apparently had offers on the table from both the Melbourne Storm and the Parramatta Eels as well. So there was a trio of contenders, more so the Eels and the Storm than the Roosters right now. And part of the reason they were going after him was that they're starting to slip down the ladder, sort of outside the top eight right now. We talked about it earlier in another podcast. Uh, uh, NRL supposedly uh, came to the Parramatta Eels and said that if you want to pay him, you're going to be pro rata rated at what would amount to a $500,000 contract across the entirety of the year, which meant 20K match payments for the remainder of the season. This was with the Warriors having to pay out their end of his contract as well. So he would have been on one point something million a year based on that. Uh, apparently the reports are that the Roosters are going to pay him $100,000 for the rest of the season, which I think at the rate quoted to the Eels worked out as $160,000 or $180,000 for the remainder of the year, uh, depending on, on buys and how match payments work there too. It's a bit of a head-scratcher 60s, and if the reports are true, and I've I found that increasingly the media has been a little bit more uh, on the mark with some of these figures than they have been in, in years gone by, whether people are leaking more accurately or not, I don't know. But is this a case of different rules for different teams and the haves and have-nots in the NRL rearing its head again? Look, it's got a smell about it, but where I probably have look, yeah, it's got a smell about. It. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deny that. But just as much as that, you also had um, last year um, the the late inclusion of um, uh, what's his name from the Broncos, Pangler Junior. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that that really uh, started. But, it started what looks to be an unlikable trend, uh, a trend that has some really worrying ramifications where players are going to be ring-chasing and, and being mercenaries as they get out of contracts early and then join a high-profile club in the hope of snagging a ring before heading somewhere else. Yeah, and this is what I was wanting to uh, speak about, is that my issue is not so much about him joining the Roosters in this instance, but it's the system. It's the system where... This change, I think, was, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure that it was brought in to cover around COVID as well. The, like the, new, the, the new deadline uh, was bumped because of COVID, yeah. yeah. We went from yeah. the June 30 cutoff to August, is it August 1? Yeah, well, the first round in August, I yeah. think it is. But what, how, what it, however the calendar falls, yeah, uh, yeah. giving teams greater flexibility to adjust their rosters due to hardship and and injuries and all the things that can, you know, destabilise a roster looking to push into the finals, which I, on surface value I have no issues with. Yeah, um, but the thing is as well that in conjunction with that, they're allowed to carry just – teams are allowed – clubs are allowed to carry just 28 players on their roster until that date. And, so they and look, the, the Parramatta Eels are, are a club that keep a spot open – because you don't know how things are going to happen or how things are going yeah. to play out. Yeah, but the thing is, that was that was what was available under the old system in terms of you'd keep that spot available until that mid-year deadline. Now, uh, you, you have to have a pretty bad scenario. And 
and I guess Parramatta had that last year with the dummy half situation. Not that it would have not that it would have been resolved because ours hit even after August last year with losing all three dummy halves. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so going down late. Yeah, if you've got you've got a thirty player squad that you can finalise, let's say it's by July one. That still gives plenty of time for uh, well, plenty of players, I should say, available for your team in the back half of the season. And that's that's not even including your second tier players that you can then use. And so if you if you structure your squad correctly, it has to be a really bad scenario where you need up until uh, the first weekend in August or another four weeks on top of that July uh, July date to be able to fill up your roster. I, I, look, I don't like it. I think it's it's leading to situations like Pengoi uh, Junior last year where he was able to be added. Let's put it in perspective, the team that was the runaway uh, minor <laughs> premier and went on to win the title was got, got able to, pick to up add... A, a huge, huge player in, in Pengoi Junior who I know yeah. can be streaky, but you know, look at the contract he commanded from the Bulldogs. That speaks to how his talents are evaluated on the market and they got him, you know, at the dollar discount store. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's wrong. And as you say, it's going to open up the door for a whole lot of shadier stuff. I think going on in terms of players looking to get out of their contracts that are at, at bottom of the table clubs. And the, the big problem is this, this is a structurally rugby league is that there is no way to facilitate what amounts to a trade, right? You, clubs that are losing a player in these circumstances, you can't get equivalent or even lesser value back. You just lose a guy and you get cap space that you can't use because it's that year. So yes. if there was a way of sort of compensating the clubs that are losing the player, uh, at least then that club isn't you know getting out the backside when the players walk out or become mercenaries. But then the other thing you were talking about, 60s, is just the general health of the competition. When, That's it. When, when the rich teams get even richer, and I say this from not a salary cap perspective or whatnot. No, the, just, strong, the, the strong clubs get, get even stronger. They, get a, they and, get a chance to get stronger because you're not talking about clubs that are struggling and are, and no, are and looking to make a late charge to no, get no, into no, exactly the eight or to, like that's that. That's right, to try and be, get a high level of competitive roster to push into the eight and then make an unlikely charge for the premiership. You're talking about a team that's lost two or three games the entire season gets a, one of the you know the better forwards in the competition for, yeah, for yeah. a bargain. And this sort of culture is something that's uh, permeated the NBA in basketball where you know ring-chasing players will help create super teams and join, you know, a handful of the best teams leaving, you know, the, the talent pool high and dry for the other teams looking to try and build. So, yep. you know, and obviously uh, Pango Jr. ended up going to the Bulldogs the year after. Uh, that, that was part of the, the farcical process. So it's not like he's ring chasing at the Bulldogs. Let's not kid ourselves. But that sort of behaviour that led to him leaving the Broncos to ring chase of Penrith is very problematic. So it's definitely something the NRL needs to keep an eye on. And the Lodge situation, 
it, it's not too dissimilar. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out, especially if he's evaluated below what the Eels were quoted. Um, but, yeah, I think that's just about it, mate. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap things up for this episode? No, mate, we've got uh, plenty that we'll be discussing in the preview podcast. Yeah, well, we're we'll back tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah, we're going yep. back to back, just the way things fell this week. We couldn't get the recording out yesterday, so here we are on Thursday ahead of round, was it 16? It's Beanie, uh, Beanie's for Brain Cancer round. So uh, that's um, something we're going to talk about in the podcast tomorrow. Obviously, the Parramatta Eels taking on South Sydney Rabbitohs. That's going to be the uh, primary focus of the podcast, unless there's some big news to break between here and then. And who knows? It's been a bit of a trend the last, <laughs> a bit of a trend the last couple of recordings that we just wrap up this podcast and suddenly the Parramatta Eels have signed someone or something big's happened. Um, but there is a bit to this. Joey Manu switched to the Eels. <laughs> yeah. Wants out immediately. Exactly. We, we get him. We get him at the bargain basement price of five thousand dollars. Love, love, round. love playing for Dylan Brown so much. He said, "Damn it, I want to do it at a club level too." That's it. Uh, but yes, uh, Benny's a brain cancer round. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Of course, Parramatta's luck. Latrell Mitchell's back. <laughs> That'll be a big talking point too. Uh, is there a team that cops more returning superstars than the Parramatta Reels? I swear, I feel like every week we talk about it. Like, oh, well, guess who's back? Oh, yeah, you know, he's been out for six weeks, back for the Parramatta Reels. Well, if we need to be focused on getting some back-to-back wins happening mm-hmm. in the in mm-hmm. this in in the second half of the year, Amen. so why why not have a superstar return and make sure that the focus the That's right. players maybe, are maybe focused. it's a case of iron sharpening iron. There, Parramatta Reels, like you said, looking for back-to-back wins, and this is also a team. That's troubled us in recent years, so it'd be just be good to get the win on the Rabbitohs in general. But that's for tomorrow's discussion, 60s. As always, thanks for stopping by and giving us a listen. It means a great deal to us. We'll catch you on tomorrow's episode and then hopefully in the post-game show of a big fat W. Go you wheels. <laughs>